the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Earnestly seek to commend yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of, handling the word of truth with precision. We're glad you're joining us for today's program, A Word from the Word, with your host, Pastor Tom, who will unpack for us the richness and beauty of the Bible's original languages as they bear on key words and concepts from both Testaments. Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining me on A Word from the Word. Well, we're now deep into our revived series. Oh, that verse means that. We're on session 43, originally airing in 2022 from January to September. 31 programs. However, back in May of this year, 2023, by popular demand, we resume this series. Once again, we'll set out to be detectives of the divine. If you'd like to access the original 31 archived sessions or catch up on these recent ones, go to faithtalk1360.com. Search under local program podcasts. Well, friends, by now, our detectives cap, our spiritual magnifying glass, and our biblical sandals ought to be standard equipment in our spiritual wardrobe. So today, let's pull them out and utilize them with the express purpose of protecting ourselves from cavalierly and authoritatively blurting out what we think a Bible verse means. Because I'm positive at times we don't even realize we're imposing a personal or modern perspective on the text. Friends, I often wonder why so many of us misuse the scriptures. I recently discovered that Bible scholars were asked this very question. Their answer was, declining biblical literacy, questionable Bible translations, and preachers who don't do their homework. And while I believe sincere Christians generally want to know what Bible verses mean, we so often miss the meanings because we focus on what we expect or want to find in them. Let's admit it, friends, we crave our spiritual quick fix, you know, our biblical morsel for the day, so we can get on with life. But shouldn't we be willing to invest a little extra time to observe the context of verses we readily abuse? Isn't God's word worth this investment? Shouldn't we seek to do the scriptures justice? Shouldn't respecting the Holy Spirit be a priority? After all, he is the author and inspirer of our scriptures. And let me be frank, it should bother us that up till now we've called out 42 Bible verses that are misunderstood, mischaracterized, 
misinterpreted and, as a result, misapplied. So I appeal to you, friends, we need to re-embrace a desire to faithfully and carefully scrutinize Bible verses we've thought meant one thing since we're discovering they mean something quite different. And let me just repeat, I take no pleasure in shining a spiritual searchlight on or get any glee from critically reinvestigating texts that are abysmally interpreted by some of us pastors, teachers, and preachers. And you know why, friends? Because the Bible has a story to tell us. It's crying out, screaming out to tell us its story. But what are we pastors, teachers, and preachers, and even average Christians do? We force or manipulate the Bible to tell our story. So I say shame on us. Well, for today's session, our scripture under scrutiny is Matthew 16:18, where Jesus replies to Peter. And I'll arrange the New Testament Greek in a reasonable word order so we grasp its meaning. I also now say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock, this rock, I will build my assembly. And gate of Hades, several translations say hell, will not overpower it, be detrimental to it, or hold out against it. Some scholars peer through the lens of the historical geographical location where Jesus was when he said this and prefer to translate the last phrase, And on this rock I will build my assembly, and the gates of Hades, or death, will not overpower it by preventing the resurrection of the Messiah. So today's session is, What are the gates of Hades anyway? Keep in mind now that Peter's initial answer to Jesus' question included these words, You are the Christ, in other words, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And friends, a significant contrast we so easily miss here is Peter contrasting living and dead. We'll expand on this later, but suffice it to say now that Hades was the mythological god of the underworld, often called the realm of the dead. In a sense, what's being divulged here is Jesus declaring victory over death through his coming resurrection, and Peter declaring that Jesus is the Son of the living God. And by extension, I believe the Holy Spirit wants us to see that Jesus is not only the Son of the living God, but also the living Son of God, unable to be held in death's clutches. One scholar's comment is, the physical death of Jesus will not hinder the establishment of the church, nor will death overtake the church. And friends, before we take the needed tour down the path of history and geography, I must say that many of our English translations poorly put the word hell here, rather than the correct word Hades. And unfortunately, many of us Christian readers don't realize there's a vast difference between these two words. Well, I'm thankful that there are popular and well-respected English translations from the literal to the dynamic spectrum that correctly have Hades. Two less popular dynamic translations even have death itself, which actually unpack the word Hades for us. Well, friends, you've heard me say often that when desiring to correctly interpret a verse or passage of scripture, the most important initial step is to ask the right questions. And so seeing the phrase, the gates of Hades, 
Hades here in Matthew 16 should prompt us to ask, why would Jesus refer to the realm of the dead here, Hades? And when considering the contexts of a verse or portion of scripture, occasionally one significant context emerges, the pagan religious context. It doesn't always crop up, but in this case it does. And we can't simply bypass it here, since it's a piece of a puzzle we need to move into place if we're to hope to unravel its significance. So friends, aside from a brief Greek lesson, we'll also invest a little time into learning a brief historical and geographical lesson. And this investigative process should be a joyful adventure for us. We'll be employing the use of our detective's cap, our spiritual magnifying glass, and our Old Testament and New Testament sandals. Interestingly enough, our Greek word Hades and its concept turn out to be the New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament word Sheol, perhaps a word you're already familiar with. It too is a reference to the abode of the dead, where one can never escape from its gates, per verses in Job and Isaiah. In Isaiah 38.10, it's variously translated as the gates of Hideth, the gates of Sheol, the grave, the world of the dead, and in the Jewish Tanakh, the gates of the underworld. Mesopotamian writings describe the netherworld as the land of no return. Ancient Near Eastern people saw the gates of Hades as preventing those inside from getting out and preventing those outside from breaking in. The netherworld or the underworld was also known for the river Styx, which formed a boundary between the living and the dead. The gates were guarded by the god Cerberus, a three-headed dog with a serpent's tail, a mane of snakes, and lion's claws, often called the Hound of Hades. Evidently, his responsibility was not only guarding the gates of Hades, but also admitting or welcoming the dead who came there, never to be released. It's difficult to pinpoint the exact meaning of the word Cerberus. It's believed to originate from two ancient Greek words, meaning death demon of the dark. Job, in his throes of physical pain and discomfort, replied to Eliphaz in chapter 7, Remember that my life is but a breath. My eyes will never see good again. The eye of him who sees me will behold me no longer. You will look to me, but I will be no more. As a cloud vanishes and is gone, so those who go down to Sheol do not return. They will never come to their home again. Their places will know them no more. In Second Samuel 22, 5 and 6, David sings these words in a song. For the waves of death encompass me, the torrents of destruction, or Belial, terrify me. The cords or ropes of Sheol coiled around me, the snares of death confronted me. I can only speculate here that the combined meaning of Job and Second Samuel suggests that those in Sheol are tied down to prevent them from escaping. Now, friends, please don't misunderstand me to be saying that the Old Testament people of God had a pagan view of death and the afterlife. We just have to remember that the ancient Near Eastern peoples in general had a foggy, convoluted understanding of death and the afterlife, and God's revelation to his chosen people was progressive 
progressive over time, obviously culminating in the New Testament revelation that we now have. The prophet Habakkuk even seems to retain a personification of death likened to some terrifying entity with an endless appetite when he says in chapter 2, 4, and 5, Behold, as for the proud one, his desires are not upright, but the righteous will live by their faith or faithfulness. Furthermore, wine betrays the haughty person, so that he does not stay at home. He enlarges his appetite like Sheol, and he is like death, never satisfied. He gathers to himself all the nations, and takes captive all the peoples. In a sense, we could say that in the ancient Near East, death was personified, and established his own kingdom, with borders, and had a guard by impenetrable gates. No one dared to challenge death's power. No one could escape their eventual meeting with death. Every person had an eventual date with death. For humans at that time, death had the final word. Well, friends, the geography of Matthew 16 places Jesus and his disciples in Caesarea Philippi, situated near a mountainous region that included Mount Hermon. During Old Testament times, it was known as Bashan, a place with a sinister reputation. Canaanite records indicate this place was where the spirits of dead warrior kings resided. Two main cities in the Bashan region were Ashtaroth and Edri. The Canaanites believed that these cities were the entryway to the underworld, the gates of Sheol. When Caesarea Philippi was built, it was dedicated to the god Zeus. Zeus is the mythological god of the sky and considered the chief Greek deity, ruler and father of all gods and humans. Here also a pagan religious center was built a short distance from the foot of Mount Hermon. The word on the street was the gates of Hades were continually open for business. Technically, Mount Hermon was the demonic headquarters of both the Old Testament world and the New Testament world of the Greco-Roman Empire. In Greek mythology, among other things, the god Pan was believed to be the child of Zeus. So among the craggy hillsides and trees of Caesarea Philippi, a temple to Pan was built. At the base of this temple, a cave existed that was long believed to be the doorway to the netherworld. In other words, Sheol. Since Pan was believed by the people to possess goat-like features, his worshippers threw goats from the precipice into the mouth of the cave, hoping that their sacrifice would be acceptable to Pan. It was in this vicinity of the natural grotto where the alleged gateway to Hades existed that Jesus promised his disciples, and I'll quote from the original Amplified Bible, I will build my church. In other words, Jesus' assembly or community, and the gates of Hades, the powers of the infernal region, shall not overpower it, or be strong to its detriment, or hold out against it. Now there's a mouthful, right friends? And this is actually the perfect juncture to read a portion of Matthew chapter 16 to get the immediate context of Jesus' significant statement. So let's begin at Matthew 16, 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you? he asked. Who do you say that I am? 
Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, or the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this, and the Greek New Testament says here, this the rock, I will build my church, or assembly, or community. Now here it comes, friends, and the gates of Hades, or death, will not overcome it. The NIV says, the traditional rendering is, shall not prevail against it, which is echoed by the ESV. The NAS, the Amplified, and the CSB say, will not overpower it. Similarly, the CEV and the GWT say, will not have any power over it. And I commend the CEV Translation Committee for saying here, and death itself will not have any power over it. The NLT and the ISV both say, will not conquer it. A lesser-known dynamic translation, The Voice, says, the church will reign triumphant, even at the gates of hell, even though I'm disappointed in their choice to say hell here. Notice, friends, the picture that these various translations are valiantly attempting to paint for us via this particular Greek word whose meaning includes overpower, be strong to another's detriment, be superior in strength, get the upper hand, prevail, surpass in strength, succeed. Are you catching this, friends? Strap on your first century sandals and stand there, not only with Jesus' disciples, but with the pagans and their own mindset. There was nothing stronger or more powerful than the gates of Hades. No one's destiny escapes Hades, ever. Well, let's pause here a moment, friends. If you tuned in late, you're listening to A Word from the Word. With me, your host, Pastor Tom. I value you as listeners to A Word from the Word, which is listener-funded. Your financial partnership keeps this program on the air, which also disciples Christians without a church home, plus those of you who may have been wounded by the institutional church. So, friends, please join forces with me and A Word from the Word by emailing me for support details at a word from the word at minister.com. We'll repeat this info at the end of the program. Now, friends, allow me to throw in a little fun fact here, a seriously fun fact, and this dovetails with the prevailing cultural understanding from ancient Near Eastern times right up to the first century Greco-Roman world. We in the 21st century are so far removed from this practice that I need to bring it out to our attention. The concept of gates. Gates in ancient times had one of the most important functions, to keep intruders out of your city. And these gates had to be reliable and strong enough to deter people from attempting to break in. Gates served as the entranceway and exitway in and out of a walled city. Cities in ancient times were walled to protect them from enemies or invading armies. People themselves even had gates to enter their own home for this same reason. The point I'm making here is that the gates were defensive. They served a defensive purpose. It was common knowledge that gates were erected for defense. I bring this out because the traditional rendering of Matthew 16:18 uses the phrase, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. 
This is unfortunate, as the Greek word does not actually emphasize the idea of against. Prevail is sufficient, particularly in this instant and its use in this scriptural passage. Because gates are defensive and erected for defensive purposes, gates should not be spoken of as being on the offensive, as the word against implies. Down through history, a somewhat skewed view arose as a result of portraying the idea that the forces of evil can prevail against us and and we need to halt their activity and push back and prevent them or keep them from succeeding. But Jesus is not painting this picture. Rather, the church, the body of Christ, the Christian community, is on the offensive, storming the gates, if you will. We're the ones attacking, seeking to keep evil at bay. Perhaps, friends, if we actually thought of ourselves this way, the church in our generation wouldn't be so limp, so ineffective at producing real change in our neighborhoods, our towns, cities, states, our country. Perhaps we don't have a true sense of our mission here on earth. Friends, in that instant in Matthew 16, Jesus declared war. He declared war against the gates of Hades. He was declaring war on evil and death. I realize that we can't say with absolute certainty that Jesus was standing right there on that rock formation that led to the entrance of the underworld, Sheol, where the gates of Hades were believed to be. But he might have been. How amazing and revolutionizing his point would be, right? What a graphic depiction of a tremendous spiritual truth. And here's a tidbit that will fry a few of our brain cells. Jesus himself knew that he too could not escape death. Jesus knew he had his own inevitable date with death. But we overlook or skip right past this crucial point, friends. Jesus didn't see meeting death as his date with despair. No, Jesus saw his meeting with death as his date with destiny. Jesus' own disciples didn't get this, friends, at first, that is. In order for Jesus to prove he had power over the gates of Hades, the gates of death, he had to communicate to his disciples and the world that he saw death as an enemy to be destroyed. Jesus' announcement in Matthew 16:18 that the gates of Hades will not withstand the new community he was building was his spoil alert, because Jesus did not stay dead. You see, initially after the crucifixion, the death of their Messiah, the disciples saw Jesus' death as their own date with despair. Their hopes were totally dashed to the ground. Death had won. The gates of Hades had prevailed. But the gates of Hades did not have the last word, did they? Not according to Jesus. We know from Scripture that Jesus' disciples were in despair, were actually depressed after his crucifixion. You remember the account in Luke 24, when those two disciples were on their way to Emmaus, don't you? Refresh your memory and read Luke twenty four thirteen through 35. The key verses are 19 through 21. Listen carefully to their emotional reply, Jesus inquiring about what things happened over the last few days. Jesus of Nazareth was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But... Here it is now. We had hope that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Now, we must let the times and the context here govern our understanding of this statement, or we'll miss its significance. These disciples weren't looking for the redemption of their souls, their redemption from sin. 
You see, their expectations were screwed up. They had the order wrong. National redemption wasn't coming first. Spiritual redemption was. Redemption from sin was coming first. Luke records Jesus' response beginning at verse 25. How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? We see this skewed understanding of redemption repeated in Acts 1, right before Jesus ascends back to the Father. You'd think that after Jesus' 40-day seminar that opens the book of Acts, they'd finally get it, but evidently they didn't. Listen to Acts 1-6, right after their 40-day seminar and some additional instructions, they ask Jesus, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? What? The disciples' disappointment and despair grew out of their misunderstanding of what their Messiah was supposed to be and do. They had been spiritually brought up to expect a conquering king Messiah, a victor who turned the tables on Rome and put Israel back where they belonged. But Jesus had to right the ship, didn't he? He had to rehearse with them the first order of business, for the Messiah was to suffer, then enter glory. You see, friends, unlike the prevailing mythological beliefs, Jesus went through the gates of Hades and came out again. This was unheard of, especially since Jesus came out more powerful than when he went in. So now Jesus has given us a new priority, a new mission to take on the gates of Hades by advancing the gospel message. We've nicknamed this endeavor the Great Co-Mission, found in Matthew twenty-eight, nineteen, and 20. But even here we mess it up, friends, because we think the commission is to go and make converts of the nations, but it's to go and make disciples of the nations, teaching them to obey all Jesus commanded. You see, only disciples, only mature, solid Christ followers can ever hope to victoriously and successfully storm the gates. Our marching orders are to advance the gospel, the good news that only Jesus has defeated death and Hades, giving hope of eternal life. In Revelations 1.18, Jesus says to the Apostle John, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, we're at the end of our program. I hope it's blessed and challenged you. As promised, we'll close with an email to inquire about helping fund a word from the word, which is listener funded. I love coming alongside you who don't have a church home or you who've been wounded by the institutional church. Podcasts are posted at faithtalk1360.com. Also Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And thanks to my friends and partners at christianbody.net, we are heard in 70-plus countries. Please help a word from the word become fully funded. And thanks for listening today, friends. And remember, Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom with a word from the word. Friends, if you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this program has meant to you, email him at a word from the word at minister.com. That's a word from the word at minister.com.
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.